The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Our second reading can be found on page 1206 and is taken from Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 to 13. That's page 1206. The point of what we are saying is this. We do not have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it is necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is as. He is mediated to superior to the old one and is found on better promises. For if there has been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people." No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and what is obsolete and aging will soon disappear. This is the word of the Lord. Our Heavenly Father, we do indeed give you much thanks and praise for the foundation you have laid for our trust in you in your word. How excellent your word is indeed to us, but how completely powerless we are to receive it well on our own. How completely obtuse we are to this clear and present word without the work of your mighty spirit. 
And so, Father, we do pray indeed tonight that you would write your word on our hearts, that we may know you. Amen. Please take a seat. And uh, it's, it's worth turning in uh, your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8 as we continue our journey through uh, this letter together. Hebrews 8, uh, page 1206 of the Church Bibles. Well, uh, there's only eight weeks to go, seven weeks to go till carols by candlelight, but eight weeks to go till Christmas. Christmas is coming. How good is that? Uh, To be honest, I can hardly wait. This year, uh, perhaps more than others. Uh, Christmas Day also marks the day that um, my family and I will be flying to Sydney, uh, as hard as it will be to leave uh, this weather behind. Uh, We're going to tear ourselves away somehow, eight weeks and counting. Uh, But it's not just that, it's not just the anticipation of uh, sunshine and uh, all that Sydney holds uh, for us. Uh, For us, and uh, really I suspect for many of us, Christmas holds uh, wonder. Uh, It is, I think, the last remaining wonderful moment uh, in the year for us as a world. Uh, Frederick Buchner, the Christian uh, writer, said uh, the moment just before Christmas Day, uh, that moment just before it all begins around, you can almost hear the world holding its breath. Uh, Such is the expectation, such is the anticipation as Christmas rolls round again. Uh, With the advent of Christmas, again, Buchner says, it's like the world is waking up, uh, waking up from the dull shadows of normal life uh, just for a moment to glimpse Uh, The wonder of Christmas. Uh, Pulling back the curtains to see what Christmas will hold this year. And tonight as we continue our series in Hebrews, I want to say that uh, all the anticipation, all the expectation, all the sense of wonder that surrounds Christmas is worth it and then some. The scriptures tell us that the uh, lead up to Christmas is much longer than just a few weeks. It stretches far uh, further back than uh, perhaps the days marked out on a chocolate advent calendar. Uh, Christmas is indeed God's purposes for all the world, for all time, finally stepping out from behind the curtains. Uh, Christmas is, uh, in the scriptures, the replacement of shadows with reality, of of promise with fulfilment. Plans that have been in place since the very basement of time, plans that have uh, been in train, uh, moving towards their fulfilment at Christmas since the very first man and the first woman, our representatives, Uh, Adam and Eve turned away from this God who made us and loves us and set this world into a pattern that we know all too well because we follow it ourselves. A pattern where we live uh, mistrusting our God and his ways. Uh, Where we live as people estranged from the God who made us and knows us better than we know ourselves. A pattern where we live in a world slaves to our own sin. But the scriptures tell us that this plan that was leading up to Christmas uh, was a plan of a God who would not let that pattern stay. And so he plans Christmas. He says to the first man and the first woman, uh, quoting from uh, the Jesus storybook Bible that I'm reading my children at the moment, here's what he says, it will not always be so. I will come to rescue you. And I'm going to do battle against all that enslaves you. I will get rid of the sin and the darkness and the sadness that you have let into this place. I am coming back for you. That's the promise of Christmas. That is why all the anticipation, all the expectation is worth it. 
It's a promise of a God whose love for us will not relent. He will deliver on this promise. It's a promise, if you read through the scriptures, that is echoed again and again, uh, hints of it all the way through salvation history. Uh, shadows, if you like, of what was going to come at Christmas time. Now, one of the shadows, if you look at our passage, Hebrews 8, is hinted at in verse 9. It was the uh, moment when uh, this, this great promise that would happen at Christmas was echoed in, in the moment when God's people were rescued out of Egypt. I will come to rescue you, he said, and he did. Verse 9, he took them by the hand and he led them out of slavery. It was an act of a God utterly committed to this promise. I will rescue you. A God who established uh, with his people that he took by the hand out of Egypt on the the Mount of Sinai, established with them a covenant. That is uh, how he was going to relate with them, how they could maintain this relationship, this perfect, holy God and this sinful people. How could they stay together? A covenant where he gave them his law, his purposes, his ways so that they could know him. A covenant where he was kind enough to develop a system where they could maintain this relationship, sinful people, holy God. Uh, Giving them priests who would uh, represent them before him. A system of sacrifice so that when they sinned they could make atonement for that sin and be forgiven again. And even give them a place to do that business with God, the, the tabernacle. It was a wonderful pattern. Now we're seeing it as we go through Hebrews, a pattern of ongoing life. God with his people. A gracious rescue. Uh, the giving of the law which we're told leads to life. A gracious system of priests and a place to maintain that relationship. How good a pattern. Uh, but even that we're told in this passage. Even that was just a hint. Uh, just a whisper of what God was going to do. Of the reality that would break in from heaven to earth at Christmas time. Now you see that in verse 5. Moses who was right at the heart of this covenant being established at Mount Sinai with God's people. And we're told there, there on the mountain he was shown a glimpse of the real thing. Uh, He was to make this sketch, this sort of pattern, this copy that, that is this system that I was speaking of. But what he saw on the mountain was the real deal. And as we read this letter, it is uh, worth remembering that the audience that uh, Hebrews has written to uh, were people who attempted to go back to the shadow, having seen reality come. Go back to this shadowy system of priests and tabernacles and sacrifices. It made sense to them. It was reliable. They knew how it worked. But the writer is saying again and again, week after week, you can't do that. Look, he's here. Christmas has come. Uh, Here at Christmas, God's purposes come out of the shadows and we see the full glorious reality of them. Jesus. Uh, Jesus is indeed all our Christmases come at once. He is uh, the fulfilment of this pattern. He is the better priest. We've seen that in recent weeks, haven't we? This perfect priest. Uh, We have a great high priest, we were told in chapter 4. His name is Jesus. He is God's son. That's the one who represents us before God. Not some dodgy human priest uh, who fails like we do, but the perfect man. Our high priest is not shadow, but reality. We have Jesus and a better sacrifice. In fact, a perfect one. The shadows and the copies have given way to reality. And the difference between the shadows and reality when it comes to sacrifice, you see that in chapter 7, verse 27. See how different the real deal is from uh, the copy. 
7 verse 27, unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sin, and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered himself. Well, there it is, our reality. Once and for all. It's one Greek word that sums up the hope of Christmas. Born to die for us. Born to walk up the hill of Calvary to offer his life for our sins. All of our sins. For all of us. Once and for all. Now we saw back in chapter 4 that he he didn't take the blood of animals as the previous priests had done. He, He takes the tested and proved blood of the Son of God, the royal blood of the one in the order of Melchizedek from chapter 7 to cover my sin and yours. Now there's no going back. We have a perfect priest, a perfect sacrifice, and here in chapter 8 we're told he serves in the perfect place. You see there in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 8. And the point of what we're saying is this, says the writer. Uh, we do have such a great high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, who serves in the sanctuary, the, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord and not by man. Our representative is perfect. The sacrifice he brings is perfect himself. And he doesn't serve in some dusty tabernacle in the desert. He, he doesn't even serve in a man-made temple as glorious as it may look. He, no, he goes right through the heavens before his father and sits down having sacrificed himself. That's where he does business for us. Now that's what Moses saw on the mountain in verse 5. That's the glimpse he got. How privileged he was. To see this perfect priest, this perfect sacrifice in the perfect place that was to come. Christmas announces the arrival of the one who we're told in chapter 7 is able to save us completely and forever. That's Christmas. God's great gift of himself, his gift of salvation. But here's the question. I wonder if it's been going through your mind as, as we've been going through Hebrews together and it's a question I think hanging in the air at this point in Hebrews. Uh, it's a question that I think our experience of Christmas forces us to ask. Uh, how do we know it's going to be enough? How do we know that the, sort of the bright lights and expectation of Christmas won't fade like it always does? I mean, that's the reality of our Christmas experience, isn't it? After the, a swell of carol singing together and the savouring of a Christmas feast and even the afternoon nap on Christmas Day, uh, we wake, but not to Christmas. Uh, we wake to life, real life, in all its mess. In my case this year, I will wake some 36,000 feet above the air Now, with someone prodding me, uh, asking if I'd like chicken or beef, and handing me two trays, which neither of them are chicken or beef. (laughs) And then I'll turn and there'll be a two-year-old next to me who's getting increasingly cross that I seem to have strapped her to a hollow metal tube that seems to be flying in the air and she has no idea why. Uh, We wake not to Christmas, but life in all its mess. We wake to real life and Christmas, well, it just gets packed away, doesn't it? The promise fades fast. It's as if uh, the hope of Christmas is like one of those shiny decorations you put on your tree and then you pack it away. But over the year it gets more and more faded and, and, and broken and bent. How do we know it's not going to be like that? 
And even beyond our own Christmas experiences, how do we know that the promise of Christmas will actually deliver? I mean, that's the thing we've seen all the way through Hebrews, isn't it? This, this ongoing relationship between God and his people keeps falling apart. We're reading person after generation after generation who falls short of this promise, responding with hard hearts to this wonderful promise, shrinking back as they see the promise, turning away from God. Now, what's to say we're not just destined to be the the latest page in that story of falling short? Now, what's to stop history repeating? Uh, To which we might say, well, no, 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 everything has changed. Uh, We have Jesus, we have his ministry to us, which is far superior to anything that's been before. So, yes, it will be different. And to that, I want to say, yes, uh, Hebrews has been at pains to say you cannot overestimate his worth. All is Jesus. We have no other. We have no need of another. And next week, uh, as we look at chapters 9 and 10, we'll see indeed how precious his ministry is to us when it comes to dealing with our sin and our guilt and our shame. And we'll see Jesus' ministry is indeed sufficient for deep and lasting forgiveness. Uh, But let me say this, and this is a potentially alarming statement to come from a preacher. Uh, That's not enough. And God knows that's not enough. He's always known. The reason he knows that is he knows your heart and mine. It is as Jeremiah 17 and 9 puts it. Jeremiah is where the quote in our passage comes from. But earlier in Jeremiah, God says this of your heart and mine. It is corrupt beyond comprehension, beyond healing. Our hearts are graffitied with rebellious and self-promoting sin. Uh, Even with this great perfect saviour before our eyes, even with this great salvation in Jesus before me, my king and my priest, even knowing that he represents me, even though knowing his grace is timely, even knowing all of that, my rebellious heart says, yes, that's great, but I'll take door number two. Whatever it might be. Now, the scriptures call that blindness. 2 Corinthians 4 says it is Satan's job to blind our eyes to our glorious saviour. But we have another word for it. Uh, Even Christians use it from time to time. We call it free will. The truth is, even here at Christmas, we willingly reject such a great gift. That's how obtuse we are. Even here at the culmination of all God's plans and promises, even as the shadow disappears and reality comes on the scene, Even then I am paralysed by my free will. My heart will always reject the idea of having a king over me, even one as good as this. How tragic a choice is that? But the scriptures know we'll make it again and again and again. Proverbs 16.25 puts it this way. It says, there's a way that seems right to a person, but in the end it leads to death. Sure, we've got free will uh, to die with. Free will to reject God's grace forever. And if you think you're different, if you think your free will, free will would see you choosing God, friend, you must be the only one. Because the rest of us, are left to our own devices, left to ourselves, even with this great salvation before us, we freely choose unbelief. And that, for me, is what's so important about the passage before us and why Hebrews is pausing at this point before we see again how precious his ministry is to us. 
Because what we see here in chapter 8 is that it's not just Jesus' ministry to us that is superior to everything that's come before, but it's also the covenant, the, the way of relating to him that he establishes that is completely new. Superior in every sense. And do you see why it's in verse 6? It's crucial. Because there are better promises that hold this relationship up. New promises that are finally fulfilled when Jesus comes. And what these better promises that accompany this new covenant do is they show us how this great salvation in Jesus is actually going to break through. And how God is going to deliver it to us. These promises are, if you like, God's Christmas delivery guarantee. How does God do what has never been done before? How does he break through our free-willing hard hearts, our turning away from him? Well, listen in. Because if you're a Christian here tonight, uh, this is what he's done in your life. And we need to hear this again uh, because it will remove from us any sense of pride that we did something. We were clever enough to choose God. How has this salvation reached our hearts? Well, through the fulfilment of these better promises. And you see them in verses 7 uh, to 12. We'll pause there for a while and look at them. Firstly, in verses 7 to 9, we see why they're needed, these new promises. And then we'll see their content. Uh, Firstly, the need for such promises in verses 7 to 9. And uh, that's explained for us there. That uh, the simple fact of a new covenant that Jesus has brought implies that the old one was well, faulty. Uh, there was something wrong with it. Not only had it served its time, but it was faulty. And that's been told to us repeatedly throughout uh, Hebrews. In chapter 7, uh, three occasions just there alone, verse 11, verse 18, verse 19, we're told it was useless, the old covenant. Useless when it came to delivering this salvation, this relationship between God and us. Why? Was it that uh, there on Mount Sinai, as um, God met with Moses, that it was a bit of a rush job? They didn't have much time to do it, so God patched it up as best he could in the time available. But if he'd spent a bit more time, he would have got it right the first time. No. Every aspect of it was meant to be a shadow until this true priest and true sacrifice and tabernacle arrived. Why was it faulty then? What was wrong with the old covenant? Well, have a look at verse 8. Verse 8 and 9 are very careful not to lay the blame of fault in the covenant itself, in the way God had established it. And so what's the fault? Verse 8, you see it there, the fault is, well, with the people. The fault in the old covenant was the hard hearts of the people that rejected God's grace. They did not remain faithful. There he was promising grace, promising provision, and they turned away. Now, if that was to change, when the real priest, Jesus, and his sacrifice of himself arrived, something new had to come. God had to change our hearts. But here's another question before we see how he's done that. And I think it's a fair question if it is in your heart. Why? Why did he not do that back then? Why did he wait some 1,300 more years to set up a covenant that was founded on promises that could do this heart-changing work? Why not do it back then? And if you're asking that sort of question in your heart, firstly, let me say it's a question, I think, asked by a human heart that is embarrassed by its own condition. I asked that question this week, and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, that's because this is how I think my heart works, my mind works. I'm convinced I have the power to change. If there's a need to change in some way, I say, I can change, I can change, I can do that. 
If there's a change required, uh, yeah, I, I have the power in me to do that. Well, God is saying, no, you can't. But then in hearing that, out of embarrassment, I ask, well, why didn't you do it back then? Well, here's his answer. You ready for it? Romans 3, verse 19. There's a verse to write down. He did it so that every mouth would be completely silent before him with no excuse, no answer. He did it such that none of us tonight would ever make the arrogant presumption that we chose him. That we worked it out, cleverer, so we put all the pieces together and we says, yes, that's good enough for me. We chose well. And no, you didn't, says God. Exhibit A to Z of salvation history. He waited and he waited and he waited to fulfill this better promise so that we'd learn that apart from him, we are helpless, dead-hearted, unresponsive fools. God had a lesson to teach us through the old covenant so that we would be without excuse. But the time has come, says Hebrews 8 verse 8, as he has promised, when he would make this new covenant with better promises, not not new promises, these are ancient promises in Jeremiah, but they were waiting for Jesus to turn up. And so what is it about them? What is it about them that will make sure this salvation is delivered to us? Look with me for a few minutes at what God has promised, these better promises. Uh, And they're quoted here, as I said, from Jeremiah. They're they're quoted from a bit of Jeremiah simply called the Book of Hope, uh, which is appropriate, isn't it? Here is the great hope we have that this will be delivered to us. Uh, Three big promises. Uh, Here's the first of them. Here's what God has promised you. Here's what makes all the difference. I will write my law on your heart. You see it there in verse 10? I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. This promise is of something completely new. And more than just being uh, those who listen to God's word carefully and and promise, yes, we'll obey that word, as they did before us, as the generations before us. the, The generation at the bottom of Mount Sinai said, we will do all the Lord has said. And then they forgot it. Rather than that just repeating itself again and again, God has said, I will give you a new covenant signed in the blood of Jesus where the will of God, not my will, but the will of God will be written not on tablets of stone and then handed to rebels, not even on sheets of paper with black ink and then handed out to us, but from that page, the very spirit of God would take that word and put it in your heart. The word leaps off this page and onto our sinful hearts and God, by the very sword of his spirit, cuts right to the heart of us. You see the new thing God is doing to deliver salvation? He's working from the inside out. If you are to receive this great salvation and this great saviour, Jesus, the spirit has to come. And he has to make the reality of the gospel, this Jesus, your king and saviour, the news of his blood and of his heavenly intercession. He has to take that and he has to put it right in the very heart of you by the sword of the spirit. It's radical surgery. And when he does it, it is a heart stopper. Or should I say a heart starter? Because you feel in that moment your whole universe is changing. That's how I felt. I remember it very clearly. 12 years old in a church in Sydney, in St Ives in Sydney. For the first time, he, Jesus, was not just some idea, not some concept. He was beautiful. And he was what I needed. 
And his law, his word was right and good and compelling and sweet and a light to my feet. That's the new covenant with this mighty promise of the work of the Spirit at work in me. And you see why he's promised to do this, this profound heart surgery? You see it in verse 10. Now, this is why he's going to do it. He wants to be our God and us, his people. Relationship is what it is about for him. And that's always been the substance of God's covenant with his people. It always was and it always will be. The very last picture we get of the new creation in Revelation 21 is that same promise. We will dwell together. You will be my people. I will be your God. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't move in and take residence in your heart with God's word, causing us to grow to love it, all I can do in light of the gospel of Jesus, as plainly as it's communicated to me, is we'll play the rebel or just play it religion. And that may be you tonight. Uh, You may have heard the news of Jesus again and again and again, of his blood being sufficient to forgive you. And all you do is play the rebel. Sounds nice, but not for me. Or more likely, there may be some of us here who are playing at religion. Uh, You are happy to go along with the gospel, happy to stand perhaps at a bit of a distance, like the morals of the Christian life. But you don't love the Bible. If it came to a choice of his will or yours in some aspect of your life, you're happy to ignore him. You don't love Jesus. And maybe externally, but not from the heart. You rule, not him. Well, if that's you, one simple appeal to you this night. God delights in fulfilling this promise here. So cry out to him that this new covenant may be fulfilled in your life. And if tonight you are someone playing the rebel, you have heard the gospel maybe a few times or maybe for years, and you feel even the slightest impulse to cry out to him tonight, let me say tonight is the night to do that. And if not, I am praying for you that God would work in that way. And so is the friend who brought you along. Now let me say as well though at this point this promise to write his law in our hearts. If you're a person who hears this and you're struggling and you're thinking I'm not sure whether he's done that for me. I'm not sure whether his law is on my heart, whether I love him enough, whether this word is precious to me enough. I want it to be but I'm not sure. Well let me say that sort of tender hearted response is a very good sign that he is about that work. And so Hebrews simple exhortation to you. uh, You see it in chapter 7 is this draw near to God with a heart of, in full assurance of faith. One final implication for this first promise, and that is very briefly in terms of evangelism. I suspect for many of us, uh, we're, our fear in evangelism is that we don't have clever enough answers or know all the right words or all the right apologetics. Uh, but what we have here in this promise is this, beyond our clever arguments and careful apologetics, what is needed to change minds and hearts is not in me or you, It's the sword of the spirit. Pray that he will swing that as you speak to your friend. More briefly, these two other promises. The second is this, we'll each know our God. You see the flow of these promises, don't you? He writes uh, his law on our hearts so that we may be in this relationship. And now that relationship is fleshed out for us in verse 11. It's personal. No longer will a man teach his neighbour or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. It's a brilliant verse, isn't it? Now I don't think it's saying no longer will they teach, as in uh, let's not bother teaching each other, because the scriptures are full of encouragements to do just that. 
But what you have here is a powerful rhetorical device highlighting for us that this knowledge of God is accessible to anyone. All can know him. You don't need someone to mediate that for you. You don't need someone to explain it to you. In this word and by the very spirit, you can know the Lord. From the greatest to the least. The prisoner can know the Lord. Those who are involved in prison fellowship know that. The lonely traveller in a hotel room as he opens up a Gideon Bible can know the Lord because of these promises. Our children can know the Lord. There's no age restriction when we can know the Lord, which puts pay, doesn't it, to the nonsense that says children can't come forward for communion. They can know the Lord. And even us. Even us, uh, the joy of being here tonight and gathering like this and meeting eye to eye mid-song and thinking, you know the Lord and I know the Lord. Intimate knowledge. That's what the Lord is promising here. An ongoing intimacy. All pointing towards the heavenly gathering in the new creation when we won't need to cajole each other. Come on, know the Lord. When that work is finished, everyone will know him who has been graciously appointed to know him. We will know him fully, even as we are fully known. And finally, and very briefly, because we'll focus on this next week, the final promise, the one that they all hang on. We will finally be forgiven and forever. Here's what all the rest of the covenant and the promises rest on. Verse 12. Now let me tell you, I'm not sure whether you're into um, memory verses and things like that or whether that's a thing for childhood, but here's a verse to remember. Here's a verse to sort of have in your wallet or up on your toilet wall or wherever it is that you're going to see it most often. I will forgive their wickedness. And the second bit gets me every time. Remember their sin no more. Uh, We don't know forgiveness like that, do we? We don't know forgiveness where it's forgotten, where it won't be dragged up at a a more opportune moment later. No, he says, I will remember it no more. Because of Christ's once and for all sacrifice, God's long-held promise here, I long to forgive you, can be delivered. Once and for all and forever. Jesus' death is the moment that that promise that is the very foundation of this new covenant was delivered to us. Let me wrap things up. As I prepared uh, this week and came across that picture you have in verse 5 of Moses atop the mountain in Sinai in that incredibly privileged spot as God is establishing this old covenant but he's being shown uh, the picture of heaven of what is to come. This relationship that's been planned since creation. This perfect priest with his perfect sacrifice in that perfect heavenly tabernacle. He sees that perfect relationship, God together with his people, worshipping their God. And he says, how good is that? And then he turns his eyes and he looks down the bottom of the mountain. And what does he see? God's people, recently rescued, are busily building a golden calf to worship instead. I wonder if he thought, how on earth do these two pictures come together? How on earth do these people and that God ever relate well, that's what's so precious about this chapter. Hebrews is written to say the point is this, as Hebrews 8.1 says, it really is true. We have a God who doesn't stand outside. There's you in your rebellion. Here's me in my saving work. Now come to me if you can. Now we have a God who refuses to leave us in dead bondage to sin, uh, paralysed by our own free will. 
And we have a great high priest who, by his spirit, according to these ancient promises now fulfilled, moves inside you and by his grace shatters your dead, dull, horrific hard heart and enables you and I to freely choose, freely for the first time, to love the God we were made to love, who loved us first and gave himself for us. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your faithfulness to your purposes. Uh, We thank you for your careful and patient planning, promising and then delivering mightily in your Son and by your Spirit. Uh, Father, take from us any sense of pride that we are your people. Pride in ourselves, that is, but cause all our pride and all our praise to be on you and the mighty work of your Spirit. We pray this for your glory's sake. Amen.